Hamas sends three Israeli hostages into the line of fire to be killed in a heartbreaking incident for the IDF. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu sends an envoy to Washington, D.C. amidst varied plans for the reconstruction of Gaza. And finally, Houthi rebels attempt to interrupt international trade by cutting off access to the Red Sea through the Bab el-Mandab Strait. Welcome to Inside Israel News, your home for American conservative commentary on world affairs and thorough and unbiased analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. Or as the internet trolls say, mouthpiece of the Zionist conspiracy, spokesman for the elders of Zion, highly paid propagandist of the Mossad. Yeah, no. This is Inside Israel News. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Welcome back, insiders. Your gregarious Vulcan, your mad genius, yours truly, here once again with the news. Uh, if you want to know absolutely everything going on in the world, you listen here. And of course, uh, there's a lot to say, so I'm going to have to just charge in through things, uh, try to cover as many topics as I can. So it's going to be a, an episode of uh, many topics being discussed uh, quickly rather than uh, so much in depth. Uh, so uh, let's dive right in. Insane things happening in American politics. Uh, Colorado trying to deny Trump access to the ballot. I don't even want to dignify this by talking about it. This is so asinine, as my dad would be want to say, um, of blessed memory. Uh, this this is just dumb. I mean, uh, the 14th Amendment was written after the Civil War. Section 3 refers to people who actively participated in rebellion against the United States. Real rebellions, not, you know, a protest getting a little out of control on uh, January 6th. That was not an insurrection. Insurrections are launched against the executive, not against the legislature. You know, rise up and overthrow a legislature. It's the executive that you overthrow. Anyway, I'm afraid some people aren't very bright. <laughs> but we knew that. Um, polls continue to show Donald Trump in a pretty good position. Uh, they are not good <clears throat> for the Biden administration. Uh, about 7 in 10 Americans want stronger border security. That includes the, the fact that more than two-thirds of voters are uh, dissatisfied with Biden's policies on the border. Uh, that's just, I mean, it, that, that says it all right there. I mean, I, I don't care who's in office. When so broad a majority of Americans want something, it really ought to be done, right? When we, when we see poll numbers like that and it's a matter of national security, we really should be cracking down. Meanwhile, Republicans in the House are holding out for a compromise to get the administration to accept increased border security in exchange for uh, foreign aid to Israel and to Ukraine uh, and also to our allies in East Asia like Taiwan. Uh, so that uh, compromise, if the Biden administration were willing to, you know, to work with that and, and make that compromise, be a good deal. I mean, after all, as I've talked a lot about the World War III by proxy, yes, uh, Russia, China and Iran, uh, North Korea being just an extension of China at this point, those countries present a significant threat to the United States. And everything that can be done to defeat all of them uh, is valuable. But at the same time, the argument can be made. What good is it 
for us to have all that security internationally when our borders aren't secure. I mean, at this point, Iran could have packed hundreds of terrorists into the U.S. Uh, the Chinese could have stuck uh, thousands of agents. We, we don't know. We are pretty sure that people are sneaking across the border who do not have our best interests at heart. So that's something that needs to be fixed. So uh, it's time for the administration to make that compromise and uh, be willing to enforce border security uh, and uh, make it... Uh, you know, make it work, right? And then Republicans would be willing to pass the aid package. Now, <laughs> forgive me for being a little bit Byzantine, perhaps uh, the way Machiavelli and the way people uh, use it. Uh, unfortunately, I think they're wrong. I, I don't think Machiavelli or uh, was uh, was saying what they think, what most people think he was saying. I mean, he was, he was talking about uh, a leader not being, you know, uh, overly aggressive. But I guess the the way I would use Machiavellian is a leader being trying to be a good leader, but not ideological uh, or uh, not too popular, but not unpopular and not uh, without ideology. In any case, it, it's about leadership. But anyway, most people think of, you know, Machiavelli as a guy who uh, promoted the idea of, you know, plotting and scheming about power or something like this. Well, the, it's all the word Byzantine is used, even though... Uh, there again, I would have to argue whether that really meets the definition of um, you know how the Byzantines actually acted. In any case, think about this. If you were the Biden administration and you see that two-thirds of Americans are dissatisfied with your policies and seven in ten Americans want the border secured, and you see this situation, you get the woke people and all this on the left uh, who are opposed to any kind of border security, you look at that situation and you think, hey, I want to get reelected. Why not just make the compromise with the Republicans and then jump out there with the media and say, I made a deal with the Republicans to secure the border and get aid package. I have improved the security of the United States and then run with it like somehow it was his idea. I mean, the media would back him up. NBC, The New York Times, uh, you know, <laughs> Washington Post, all of them would just go with Biden and be like, you know, hey, hey, yeah, you know. Uh, MSNBC and, and uh, CNN especially, you know, Biden secures the border, make it sound like he's being real, you know, tough or whatever. I mean, it would be better than going down with a sinking ship. At this point, the border is a major vulnerability for the Democrats. Meanwhile, national security is becoming a major vulnerability for Republicans uh, who have traditionally held the national security zone. But uh, too many Republicans uh, buying into Russian propaganda, Republican voters, and not being willing to stand up to Russia means that the GOP could start looking weak on national security. Like somehow some Republicans want our enemies to win. And if that becomes the case, yeah, that could be dangerous. In any case, I mean, if I were Biden... Um, you know, it, and I would play this, like I just said, in a sort of Machiavellian way. I would uh, work out a hard compromise, a difficult compromise, and then take credit for the whole thing and make it sound like I was the one creating the borders here. Of course, if I were president and I <laughs> this, uh, policies of the United States would be considerably different. Um, but that will never happen. In any case, <laughs> Uh, the polls suggest as a result of uh, these many factors that Donald Trump is most likely uh, or at the very least has a, a significant lead in uh, becoming the next president. I will just say just for a moment here um, about the, the ballot thing. You know, we're, we're going to have the Supreme Court rule on it. And thankfully, that should put an end to all of this uh, very quickly here. <clears throat> 
this ballot nonsense. But, um, you know, to see RFK Jr., the, the independent candidate, the third party candidate in this race, jump out right away and say that this was a mistake. And he's like, you know, I'm not a Trump supporter, but, you know, I'm running against him for president. But everyone should be on the ballot. That was that was pretty good. A uh, lot of people who have come out and, and taken the sane stance. You know, <laughs> sanity shouldn't be the courageous stance, right? I mean, you shouldn't have to be outspoken to tell the truth and be uh, be sane. So um, there you go. But, uh, you know, and the left, of course, is out there. Uh, we're we're. Uh, you know, we're trying to save democracy from Donald Trump. He's evil. So we've got to take him off the ballot and deny people the right to vote for him. Yeah, that's that's how we protect democracy. I'm, you know, I'm strange. I'm starting to think just just getting a little thought in the back of my head here that maybe the left really isn't interested in democracy anymore. Maybe they've decided that they're the only ones who should be able to win elections and they should have the right to decide who's allowed to be on the ballot. But then I think I've said something like that before. Uh, so we, we have all of that. Um, Saturday Night Live. So I talked in the last episode about the presidents of uh, UPenn, MIT and Harvard going up and embarrassing themselves in front of Congress, not able to answer Elise Stefanik's question about, is it okay to, you know, is, is it against the rules at your college to call for the genocide of the Jews? And it depends on the context. Well, you know, one of those presidents has uh, resigned. Unfortunately, the other two are in power. And it looks like when it comes to gay, president of uh, Harvard, it looks like Obama is doing what he can to keep her in office. And, uh, you know, that's, that's terrible. Anyway, SNL decided Saturday Night Live, for those of you in Rio Linda, SNL decided to uh, create a comedy skit making fun of this, where, uh, you know, the person purported to be Congresswoman Stefanik is up there and can't make it out. And the, and the you know, person pretending to be one of the one of the uh, college presidents is sitting there, you know, I, I don't understand what you're asking. It's like it, it was really ridiculous. Um, Anti-Semitism isn't funny. OK, it, it really isn't funny. Calling for the genocide of the Jews isn't funny. We saw what happened 80 years ago when people called for the genocide of the Jews and no one stood up to them. It really isn't funny, people. And so Saturday Night Live has embraced neo-Nazism. What can I say? One of the reasons that, you know, their ratings are terrible and nobody's watched SNL for decades now. I, I can't even remember the last time I did watch. Uh, oh, my God. Well, in part in uh, as a result of the uh, wokeness and in part as a result of gays' comments before Congress, uh, Harvard is suffering and uh, their pre-enrollment applications are down significantly. Uh, the, the great institution is falling. Now, I want to take a step back just for a second here and go back to a, a mentor, if you will, of mine. I didn't know him personally, but I enjoyed listening to him all the time, Rush Limbaugh. And Rush used to point out that it was the goal of leftists to destroy the great institutions. That when, when Disney is going, you know, circling the drain now because of wokeness, that's their goal. I mean, it's not in particular the goal of the people who are running it. They still think they'll make money off of wokeness. Somehow they think, 
you know, they really believe that that's the winning bet. Uh, and then they watch the company, you know, losing money. And they're like, I don't understand how that could happen. Maybe the overwhelming majority of Americans aren't woke and they're kind of sick and fed up of your, your BS. But if that sounds a little too rational, okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, but it's their goal. It's their goal to ruin football with people, you know, kneeling and playing the black national anthem and things like it's their goal to bring politics and bring wokeness into everything to poison all the wells so that we cannot have fun so that we cannot do anything without having it in our faces. Right. Uh, and now they're destroying Harvard, one of the great educational institutions of the United States. And it's going down the drain. No. Me personally, as a lawnsman, I didn't go to so ostentatious a college or university as Harvard. And in fact, um, my my big claim to fame, of course, I have an MBA from uh, Bar Ilan University, which is Israel's Harvard, uh, Israel's top business school. Uh, but uh, studying abroad was really great for me. And I thought that was a more valuable experience than going to some expensive school. But I mean, as a parent, at least some of whose children, some of my children are going to go to college. Uh, I sure as hell wouldn't want them to go to Harvard, though, would I? I mean, you know, it's a Nazi campus. I'm not, you know, I'm not sending my Jewish children to a Nazi campus. Uh, and uh, MIT as well, not protecting Jewish students. At least the, at UPenn, they're going to have a new president. Maybe they'll crack down on anti-Semitism. Um, <sighs> my friends. <laughs> okay, so... I'm going to end the American segment here real quick before I go to the break with one quick comment. Uh, you know, I went to the bathroom the other day, fueling at a truck stop. Uh, I, uh, you know, I drive a pickup truck for work, but for the most part, <laughs> I go to truck stops because it's a good place to get diesel. You're pretty, you know, pretty decent price on diesel usually at most of your truck stops. And they have plenty of services. And sitting in one of the stalls written on the on the, the door of this uh, stall was somebody who had clearly, um, you know, had, had some political views they wanted everyone else to know. So they had written on the door there about, you know, don't trust the news, don't trust CNN or Fox News, go to this website, go to that website, check this out, check that out. And they listed all these things that they, they thought were there. Uh, and, you know, the person was pretty conservative. And I've up to a point, I was laughing a little because it seemed a little bit out there the way they had written it down and that it was written on a bathroom stall. And so I'm having a good chuckle here with this and thinking, hey, you know, this this person might be out there, but we're generally going to be on the same page. Right. Uh, and then it gets to the bottom and says, kill Klaus Schwab. Kill Klaus Schwab. So a lot of people think Klaus Schwab is one of these, uh, you know, like Davos uh, globalist uh, bankers or something like this. Um, I, I don't know why they'd want to kill the guy. I mean, you know, if you don't like his uh, politics, uh, I would personally just like to see him out of power, not in a position to wield any influence over things. You know, call him out as, as somebody you disagree with. OK, but kill. Let's step back here. One of the things that I used to tell college students when I would go on tour with college, colleges back in California is if, if your ideology teaches you that you have to hate someone, right, that you want to disenfranchise someone, steal from someone, take, you have to take something from someone else or force someone to do something, then you should have a different ideology, right? 
as a conservative, I don't want to take anything from anybody. I want everyone to be able to live, <clears throat> have a right to be born, to have freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, right to own a gun, freedom. I want everyone to prosper. I personally want everyone to achieve their maximum potential. I want them to have the maximum earning power. I want them to have their best life. Why? Because that's how I get my best life. When everyone is prospering at their highest level, we are all prospering. It's, you know, rising tide raises all boats, right? That's how freedom works. We're all free. We can all say what we want. We can't force other people to think like us. We have to argue and debate and convince people, okay? But when you have an ideology that is calling for some group of people to be made poor, or destroyed, or oppressed, or something, or you want to you steal from the rich to give to the poor, you know, especially if you want to kill anyone, right? Whether it's Klaus Schwab or the Israelis, your ideology should not rise, no, no ideology should rise to the point of killing someone. No ideology, no big idea is worth a human life, all right? Now, people come to attack us, people come to kill us, the bad guys at all we defend ourselves, right? That makes sense. But no ideology is worth killing anyone over, right? I've heard, I, I've made this argument before about the, the LGBTQ thing. You know, people saying, you know, the, the West is all LGBTQ and that's why Russia's fighting back. Yeah, you know, Ukraine, which is nothing to do with the LGBTQ agenda is, you know, Ukrainians are being massacred girls and women being raped and murdered by Russian soldiers, Russians systematically clearing out villages, burying people by the hundreds in mass graves uh, because they're opposing the LGBTQ agenda. You know, they're, they're fighting a war for Christian virtue through rape and murder and torture and, and mass graves and what have you. Wow. Um, oh, if, if that's the kind of thing that you get behind, my friends, um, you need to see a psychiatrist. You need, you need to see a doctor because that's insane. No idea is worth people's lives. All right. We, as conservatives, want people to live healthy lives. If you ask me, I will tell people, tell you, you know, live a, you know, a, a healthy traditional life, you know, have faith, believe in morality, all these kinds of things. But you can go live how you want as long as you don't hurt me. Right. Uh, I really don't care. Not my business, right? I don't mean anyone harm. No one has to die for these things. All right, so I just want to take a minute. I mean, these haters, the anti-Israel protesters, these neo-Nazis that are out there now, uh, people calling for, you know, kill this person, kill that person. That's dangerous talk. How about not? How about we don't kill anybody? You know, how about we just chill? All right, every human being has value. We were all created equal. We were all created in the image of our creator. We, in the, we, are, we are like God in some way. And he wanted us to know that. So he had it written down in the Torah, the Bible, right? He had it written down for us, okay? We are all valuable. No one has to die. And so if you want someone to die, if you if your belief system requires you to want someone's death or want ill for someone or you want to kill people or steal from them or deprive them of their rights, rethink your position, please. Right or left. OK, and I would go a step farther and say, watch out for tribalism. Watch out for the us and them. 
I realize the woke mob, they are, you know, they are very much a them and they don't respect us, but we can respect them, right? Ultimately, we want these people to take the green dye out of their hair, to recognize that their chromosome aligns with their sex, right? And however they want to dress and act, they can't go into the wrong bathroom, okay? Be really nice if they'd sit in a pew at a shul, synagogue, that is, or a church and, you know, find morality and, and join us as, as people who have faith in something bigger than themselves. I would love nothing more than to see that, right? That's where I want these people to be. I want no harm to come to them unless they attack, you know, people who commit crimes, they have to, they have to be punished and they may spend some time in jail where hopefully they will undergo a transformational process that will bring them out as a law abiding citizen. Anyway, Let's, let's end the hate. Let's end the tribalism. It's time for us to focus on how do we get our country back together and make it right. And no one has to get hurt unless, you know, they don't want to behave themselves or follow the law. They, you know, if you, you know, attack a police officer, you might get hurt a little bit. Not very bright idea. Let's put it that way. In any case, when I get back from the break, Israeli news. On to Israeli news. Heartbreaking incident that I have to start with that is is not much fun. It happened very recently that in their desperation, Hamas has been sending out uh, homicide bombers, as we call them, or suicide bombers, as they're called uh, commonly, especially in the international media. Uh, sometimes under flag of truce, that they're running out of buildings with white flags, try to get as close to Israeli troops as they can and then blow themselves up and cause whatever harm they can <clears throat> uh, to the Israeli soldiers. Uh, this and a number of other incidents with Hamas you know, fighters pretending to, to surrender and then attack has led to uh, a terrible incident. So, the, so Hamas you know, freed three hostages and sent them into a combat zone where Israeli forces were actively engaged in fighting with Hamas. And uh, these men, unfortunately, were killed by the IDF to uh, defend themselves, thinking, again, that these might be Hamas fighters. And that is a, an absolute um, tragedy. This happened back on uh, December 15th. And this, you know, this is another example of the kind of thing that happens when you have these kinds of horrible um, atrocities going on from Hamas, like, you know, that they don't, that they don't have a respect for human life. And so they create, they're able to create a situation whereby Israeli forces, um, in, in trying to defend themselves end up in, you know, firing in, in a situation like this. Um, the names of those three hostages were Alon Shamir, Shamriz, Alon Shamriz, Yotam Haim, and Samar Talalka. Sad thing. Terrible, terrible incident. Again, if only, um, if only we were fighting human beings in any kind of civilized manner, uh, if, they, if they fought with any kind of decency, then these kinds of things wouldn't happen. Uh, this was the biggest coup for Hamas. They loved it, thought it was a great thing, uh, and <clears throat> that's just... <sighs> This is, this is the kind of war we're fighting here. No holds barred. 
unfortunately. Hamas could be trying anything. You can't trust anything. And just when you think everything's calm, they start coming up out of the ground, out of their tunnels and attacking. Uh, Israel and Egypt have been pumping water, seawater into the tunnels and forcing Hamas fighters up to the surface. So, you know, we're not we're not the only ones. Of course, you know, when Israel does it, we're the only ones who make the news. Israel offered a seven day ceasefire to Hamas in exchange for 40 hostages, the last of the women and children among the hostages. Basically, Israel told Hamas, even though it is very much in Israel's uh, to Israel's detriment and is not in Israel's best interest, uh, Israel would entertain a seven day ceasefire if Hamas would return all remaining women and children. Right. Simple, simple deal. Hamas turned it down. They did not want a ceasefire. Shows you, you know, people keep saying, you know, well, we want a ceasefire, we demand a ceasefire, and all this kind of thing, right? What, you know, we offered one to Hamas. They refused it. So, um, there you are. So far, the Gaza war is going very well for Israel. About 8,000 terrorists are dead to about 500 IDF losses since October 7th. And uh, while, you know, we miss our our 500 dead, obviously they are eliminating a lot more terrorists than are um, than Israeli forces that are falling. So that's a a winning formula right there. Good plan to defeat the uh, the terrorist forces. Hamas is becoming increasingly desperate. Uh, And I'm going to uh, come back to Gaza and the. You know, potential solutions to that in a minute. First, I want to talk about Hezbollah and agitation in the north. So Hezbollah has been stepping up their attacks. It's been a very rough couple of weeks here. Hezbollah has attacked like they have not, you know, they've attacked um, more ferociously than they had before uh, in the years before, uh, weeks and, and, and months before in this particular conflict, but in the recent years, uh, firing anti-tank missiles and uh, rockets. They fired, you know, we have video out there. You can watch several rockets being fired from a mosque into, uh, Israel. So this is, uh, something Israel has to watch. And Israel is returning fire directly at those who are firing at Israel rather than say stepping it up or making a, a more, um, I don't want to say a more concerted attack against, uh, Hamas, uh, I guess Hezbollah up in the north. So, you know, they're they're just you know when when Hezbollah fires, we fire back. You know, not we're not escalating this. We're not allowing this thing to to blow itself out of proportion. But Israel cannot relax because there's this threat to the north. Even when Gaza is pacified, there will still be fighting up north, and that will be a problem. That's another Iranian proxy, right? Um, the Palestinian Authority could also be a threat. We don't know that uh, the uh, that terrorism will not result from Judea and Samaria, what the international press erroneously calls the West Bank. West Bank of what? I don't know. I mean, as I've said before, when when Jordan controlled it, it kind of made a little bit of sense that it was uh, the West Bank of the Jordan relative to Jordan. But now it's no longer Jordanian. It belongs to Israel now. So... Uh, and, you know, it's kind of governed under the Oslo Accords. Therefore, it's Judea and Samaria. It's what it's been called for 3,000 years. So uh, <clears throat> anyway, 
So there is that. Uh, Israel has to be concerned about threats coming, potential threats coming from all directions. And they have uh, continued to bomb Iranian forces in Syria to prevent them from taking advantage of the situation, including killing an Iranian commander. Speaking of Iran, they recently uh, tried to claim that the October 7th attack was in response to the killing of Soleimani, uh, Soleimani from uh, years ago uh, when, when Donald Trump had him killed. That's nonsense. I mean, they, they, made, they made no real response at the time. And hey, if they want to go out there and claim that that's, that's a memorial, that, that murder, rape, torture of you know, children and, and girls and what have you is, is the way they want to remember this, you know, avenging this terrorist. Uh, I mean, these people are so evil. It's, it's just not even funny. So Israel has to be prepared for attacks from any direction. <clears throat> so far, the PA seems to be you know, behaving themselves within, a certain, within certain boundaries. Uh, Israel has had to launch several operations in Judea and Samaria to root out other terrorist groups, including Hamas. And uh, obviously, there is broad support among all Palestinians for what happened on October 7th. So that includes those in Judea and Samaria as well. So... Here you go. All right. Um, what's going to happen with Gaza after the war? This is starting to be the main point of contention internationally. The Saudis just pitched a plan that would have involved uh, this. This is not just a rebuilding plan. This is a plan to, to end the conflict. It would involve the Hamas leadership going into exile in Algeria. Uh, Hamas disarming in Gaza. So there would be no, you know, Hamas would no longer have power there. Uh, then there would be a multinational force in Gaza to help uh, with its rebuilding and restructuring, you know, dealing with issues within Gaza. Uh, and then after four years or so, the Palestinian Authority would take over the management of that region. So that's the Saudi plan. Well, it's an interesting idea. Uh, it is interesting that Saudi Arabia is pitching a plan like that. We've never had anything quite so sensible, proposed by Saudi Arabia before. Interesting idea. So kind of as a, a, a counter-proposal, I would say, <laughs> we look at that. Uh, you know, how about the Hamas leadership dies on the battlefield? And uh, if they're arrested, then they can die of old age in an Israeli prison. Uh, how about uh, Hamas is destroyed? And those who want to surrender can just come out of their holes. The rats can come out of the, the holes underground <laughs> anytime and give up their weapons and, and be arrested. And that's over. OK. And that solves that problem. Nobody even has to go into exile. Uh, and uh, the Palestinian Authority can't manage anything. It's so corrupt. It's so backwards. They, they shouldn't even be in control in Judea and Samaria. So we shouldn't hand anything over to them. However, I did want to take this one point, the idea of a multinational force. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know that I already proposed the idea of the Arabs getting together, perhaps with the help of Europe. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, Arab governments, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and have them take charge of uh, the rebuilding of Gaza and you know rebuild it. Change the education system. I talked about how, you know, it'd be 20, 25 years, even if you stopped teaching kids terrorism in kindergarten in the Palestinian territories right now, it would be 25 years before those kids are, are adults of any influence. Right. So 
it would take time for them to change for things to change there. But get started. Right. And then let those people govern themselves. And if they can show themselves competent and capable of self-government in some kind of democratic, pluralistic or something like some kind of civilized society, not preferably one not bent on the genocide of their neighbors, then life would be good. You know, they'd, they'd have a chance to, to work and live and life would go on. And then they can govern themselves. That multinational force could leave. Right. There really is no need for the Palestinian Authority to control anything. Uh, And I complained in my in the last episode about the PA uh, being part of discussions with the State Department. The State Department here in the U.S. is pitching this idea of the PA eventually taking over Gaza again. And that's a problem. So Prime Minister Netanyahu has sent Ron Dermer, the Minister of Strategic Affairs, to the White House and to Washington generally to talk about this issue with the State Department and the Biden administration. Uh, and explain why it's a bad idea so uh, they they can better understand what's going on. And come on, people. I mean, let's let's not be ridiculous here. The Palestinian Authority are not the people you want governing anything. So let's uh, let's rebuild Gaza as something better. Right. Meanwhile, President uh, Egyptian President al-Sisi and King Abdullah of Jordan have met. And they are talking about uh, what what will happen in Gaza after the war. So there's already some discussions going on in the region amongst Arab leaders. That's a smart idea. You know, if, if those Arab countries could come together with a plan for the rebuilding of Gaza that is sane and reasonable, uh, Israel would be willing to cooperate with that. We don't want to see... You know, people killed, destroyed or living in poverty and oppression and what have you. It would be nice if those people would stop trying to kill us, you know, uh, rape and murder, all this kind of fun stuff. Oh, yeah. All right. Then there's the issue of the U.N. Oh, my God. The UNRWA at this point, which is the agency that, that runs the Palestinian situation, is so corrupt. Uh, you know, their vehicles are used to transport weapons. Uh, all of their schools have tunnels or are used as weapon caches. And, and just uh, at least one hostage reported being kept in the attic of a, a teacher, a UNRWA teacher, someone on the UN's payroll. So the UN basically, you know, they work for Hamas. And in a recent call, um, a, a Gaza resident was calling someone asking for help. And that person said, well, why don't, why don't you get, uh, why don't you contact the UNRWA? And, and the, the person on the phone call replied, well, they're, they're run by Hamas, right? They, they won't give me food, right? So uh, the people of Gaza know, they understand that the UN is Hamas, right? Hamas and the UN are, are one in the same, that they're working together. And that is a big problem. Um, President Herzog, of Israel, Isaac Herzog, the Israeli president, I've mentioned before, they have a parliamentary system. So the president is kind of a figurehead like the Queen of England, doesn't have a lot of power. But he has spoken out to the international community saying that basically all of the UNRWA aid, all of the aid going to Gaza is going to Hamas. Right. They, they drive trucks full of food in through the Rafah crossing or through Israeli crossings into Gaza and Hamas takes them right away. And there are videos of them beating people up, using the butts of rifles to knock people to the ground and steal this food. And uh, then, you know, you have sold, you know, these these terrorists sitting on top of these trucks, riding these food trucks into 
you know, Hamas enclaves where they are uh, unloaded for, for use by Hamas. So I'm going to talk about the UN a little bit more uh, in the international section, but um, people are starting to get the idea. This is just, it's unacceptable. You know, that and the Red Cross. The Red Cross refused to send to deliver life-saving medicines to an Israeli hostage. They were absolutely useless to the hostages in Gaza. Uh, apparently, Jews just don't qualify for Red Cross support. So the International Red Cross is done. We, we need to get rid of them. They're, you know, I wouldn't, I, nobody should give them a penny. Uh, and they, they need to be disbanded. And some other organization needs to be formed uh, to provide that kind of aid. Because they are not it. So there, there you go. Um, whew. This is just too much. Um, all these things going on there in Gaza. But the war is going very well for Israel. Uh, the, uh, the terrorists are being defeated. They're capturing a lot of them, killing a number of them. And there you go. It, it's happening, right? Hamas is being destroyed. I said earlier on, Hamas delenda est. Hamas must be destroyed. As uh, Cato might have said in Rome of Carthage, <laughs> Carthage delenda est. This is this is one of these things that that needs to be um, that needs to be understood. That Hamas must be destroyed, and it needs to happen. And I'm glad to see Israel pursuing that policy and making that happen because that's where we want to be. All right, when I'm back for the break, international news, and then I will discuss World War III by proxy. On to the international news. So there's been this issue coming up lately. I, I saw a couple of posts that uh, on social media that reminded me that maybe people didn't understand certain things. <laughs> so I... You know, there, there are things that I know and I kind of take for granted because I just assume everyone else knows them and uh, maybe they don't. Uh, but, you know, somebody, uh, once again, another meme that, you know, uh, supporting Russian mass murder uh, with the narrative about Ukrainian corruption or something, about you know, money going to Zelensky. Right. Uh, and so I just wanted to take a minute to clarify this because this, this kind of thing, it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, the U.S. aid for Ukraine does not go to Zelensky personally. <laughs> you should know that. Uh, actually, 90% of it, $9 out of 10, go to U.S. companies here in the U.S. to make munitions and things like that uh, for Ukraine. Uh, a good deal of the Ukraine aid we've spent up to this time has also gone to NATO to step up uh, NATO preparedness and help make sure that NATO's air defenses are ready for anything that might transpire. Right. We want to keep our allies ready. But uh, the forty one billion dollars that has been appropriated thus far, the military aid portion of that mostly goes to U.S. companies to produce munitions. And a lot of those munitions are not even going to Ukraine. They are to replete re, <laughs> to refill depleted stockpiles that we have. So if we send a bunch of Javelin missiles to Ukraine, then we don't have them for our military. Right. We need those stockpiles for our service. Uh, our armed forces so that they can use them if they have a conflict. Therefore, we we spent money to rebuild those uh, weapon, you know, build more of those weapons. So we have stockpiles. Anyway, there are no pallets of cash landing at the presidential palace in Kiev. 
Now, I know, I know, believe me, the, the, that was a heartbreaking story with Iran that, you know, we sent pallets of cash there and allowed the Iranians to have access to money that the U.S. had seized uh, during the, the early days of the revolution in Iran. Uh, and <clears throat> it was heartbreaking to see because that, the federal courts could have started, could have given that money to the victims of Iranian terror, uh, taking it away from the Iranian government. Uh, but instead, Barack Obama decided to send them pallets of cash in exchange for a deal that really didn't do anything about their nuclear program uh, that the Iranians really never adhered to in the first place. So what a mess. Uh, the Biden administration, on the other hand, has been so weak, the Iranians won't even pretend to agree to a deal with, with the Biden administration. How is that for you? When, when your enemies who have been very good at pretending to sign deals that uh, with your predecessors aren't even willing to pretend to sign a deal with you. Wow. Anyway, so, uh, you know, there, none, of this, none of this cash goes to Ukrainian politicians. Some of it does go to economic aid. Uh, a lot of that is to rebuild infrastructure that's been destroyed by the Russians. They destroy power plants trying to freeze people to death because the Russians are wonderful people like that. And... Uh, stuff like that. There, there's some money going to uh, pension programs in Ukraine that help to pay veterans and, and uh, soldiers who've been injured and things like that. But there are some people who question why we should be doing that. I, I understand you know, a little bit of that money going places we're not sure of, but the money is being spent here, most of it, on weapons being manufactured here and sent over there or being spent on NATO. So the $41 billion so far, or 44, depends on whom you ask, that's going <clears throat> to military aid to help Ukraine. Uh, now, the Biden administration has no plan. You know, they have no idea how they're supposed to, you know, how, how Ukraine is supposed to win. Uh, they just seem to be throwing money at the problem and thinking, well, you know, if we keep paying for this, eventually something will happen. You know, there needs to be a strategy. There needs to be a plan here. Uh, and we need border security. <laughs> so with the U.S. House, you know, the Republican-controlled House holding up the aid package, good for them. You know, we, we'll secure our border and help our allies fight the bad guys all at once. It's a, it's a good plan. Uh, but the Biden administration has to be willing to compromise, which is the name of the game in our political system. Uh, so, you know, securing the border is not radical, extreme MAGA or whatever the heck the— Biden administration is saying, like I just said, seven in 10 Americans want more border security. So that's that's broad mainstream politics right there. So uh, in any event, the 61 billion dollars in aid that is being asked for now would go largely to U.S. companies and allied countries to build munitions to make sure that Ukraine can continue to fight. So. That, that needs to be well understood. U.S. aid uh, is not supposed to go directly into, you know, to a foreign government. Like, we are not just dumping a bunch of money for Ukraine, and uh, people are not supposed to pocket this money. You know, I'm not going to say it doesn't happen. They have had a very corrupt uh, culture up to this point. Zelensky has been fighting that as best he can in his time in office, but uh, you can't change that kind of stuff overnight. Um, so... You know, all these people talking about, you You know, Europe needs to step up and Europe needs to do its part. Well, they are. I mean, you know, Denmark, the Netherlands, I mean, some of these countries are putting up billion dollar, one point eight billion dollars out of Denmark going to Ukraine. That's a lot of money for Denmark. Denmark's a small country. So 
that's a that's a lot of money. Or I should say 1.8 million euros, which is you know comparable. But in any case, so um, Europe is putting up a lot of money. The EU has a plan to send some 58 billion dollars of European Union money to Ukraine, but it's being held up by Hungary. But between that and the packages being sent by individual countries. You know, you're getting pretty close to matching. At this point, the U.S. Has, has invested $41 billion in this. Um, Europe is getting close to matching what we've put in thus far and uh, matching our total. Even if we spend $100 billion, which would include the new aid package, Europe is, is looking to match that. They understand that this is about their security. They know that the Russians are the bad guys. And like I said before, <laughs> last episode, the Russians know they are our enemies, they say they are our enemies. They act in a manner that is antagonistic to U.S. interests and they commit horrible atrocities. So it's pretty obvious that the Russians are not on our side. They are the bad guys and nobody here should be rooting for them. Anyway, uh, Hungary uh, basically abstained from, you know, the uh, Prime Minister Orban left the meeting when uh, they were discussing uh, Ukraine membership in the EU. There's, it's a long process and it's going to take many, many years. And so Hungary will have more opportunities to try to uh, buy time or stall or whatever down the road. So don't expect that to be an easy process. But basically, uh, the the Bundeskanzler, the, the Chancellor of Germany, he, Olaf Scholz, had a conversation with Orban. He said, look, you know, why don't you just head out of the room and uh, if this isn't really important to you, then just, you know, don't come back to the session today. And so the EU voted in, you know, what is mostly a symbolic move that they would begin accession talks with Ukraine. Ukraine has been changing their laws and adjusting their court system and doing everything they can to try to make themselves compatible with the European Union. There's a long way to go with that. Uh, it's going to take a, a decade, maybe two. But eventually Ukraine may join the EU. In any case... Um, you know, it's a show of support, but Hungary is blocking aid to Ukraine and, and they're doing it for purely altruistic reasons. They're, they're, uh, they're definitely not, you know, playing into Russia's hands. Um, and, and certainly they're not, uh, you know, going out and, and taking every opportunity to complain about $30 billion in money that the EU, uh, was going to give to Hungary that the EU is withholding over concerns about democracy in Hungary. Right. Uh, it's definitely not a, a, a quid pro quo kind of thing. Definitely not. It's not that Hungary wants the 30 billion dollars for themselves and therefore they're blocking, you know, nearly 60 billion dollars in aid for Ukraine. Um, but uh, some the EU has released some of that money to Hungary. So, you know, <sighs> you know, international politics, my friends, is so disgusting sometimes. Um, it's so sleazy. I, uh, I just don't have, you know, <laughs> I don't have any other words for it. What can I, what else can I say? Okay. In Europe, the, um, traffic light coalition in Germany has been having a little bit of a rough time. So I, I've described before, you know, obviously Germany has a proportional system and they have many political parties and this kind of thing. They have these governing coalitions. I've, I've talked a lot about parliamentary systems and how they work on the show. So you can always go back and listen to older episodes, but anyway, they um, they have the this coalition, uh, governing coalition that's put together just so. And in Germany, politics is very colorful. 
every party has a color, and those colors have uh, a lot of meaning to politics. So, for example, right after the last election, uh, Guna and the Free Democratic Party, so the Greens and the Free Democrats, the Free Democrats are the uh, the free market party, the pro-business, pro-free market, free enterprise party. Uh, there is Europeans say neoliberal, right, which means uh, like Milton Friedman, you know, free gut, free market kind of people. My kind of people. I like I like Christian Lindner and and the the Free Democrats very much, <laughs> the Free Democratic, because they are uh, they're generally headed in the right direction economically. In any case, they and the Green. Uh, formed a coalition because the Free Democrats are represented by the color yellow and Gruna is obviously represented by the color green. Uh, they formed a, a, a working deal between the two of them to, form, to, to work with a larger party after the last election to form a coalition. And that was called the Citrus Coalition. Yellow and green. Citrus colors, right? Lime, lemon. Okay. Anyway, um, they then entered negotiations with uh, the SPD, the the. Uh, Social Democrats, who are the primary left party, whose color is red. And so red, yellow, green. Traffic light, right? That's how they got the name Traffic Light Coalition. Well, the Traffic Light Coalition had a really bumpy uh, budget negotiation. And for a time there, it was tense. And there was some thought that the coalition might break down. Olaf Scholz, who is the uh, the Bundeskanzler, the, the federal chancellor, he is a very weak leader. Again, this isn't even his coalition. It was really Annalena Baerbock and uh, Christian Linder, the two leaders of the you know Green and, and Freie Democratic, who came together to form the Citrus Coalition. They're really the driving force in this coalition. And uh, Annalena Baerbock, as foreign minister, has been a driving force for uh, Germany's foreign policy, um, more so than the SPD, which controls the chancellery, of course, and also uh, the defense ministry. In any case, uh, Olaf Schulz is a fairly weak leader, although he seemed to show some backbone to Viktor Orban at the <laughs> at the EU meeting. So I, I was uh, after I heard that, I was, go Olaf! <laughs> it sounds like Olaf has done uh, very well. So very good Thank you very much. Danke. <laughs> but uh, they, had, they had some tough budget negotiations. There was some thought that the coalition might break up. But none of these parties wants an election. If elections are held, uh, in all likelihood, the result will be that the Christian Democrats will gain some seats and they and the Social Democrats will form another unity government. That's what Germany had previously under Angela Merkel, who had been chancellor for 16 years. <sighs> So, you know, we don't need, you know, 16 years of leadership. You know, leaders should lead countries for no more than 10 years. In the U.S., we have the blessing of the two-term limit. You know, ten, you know, eight years is enough, and then we can move on. Uh, in British politics, leaders who have gone more than 10 years are rare. But when you look at, uh, you know, Maggie Thatcher's tenure, a little over 11 years, uh, she ended up being unceremoniously booted from number 10 and then Tony Blair went 10 years and Labor Party booted him. So, you know, eight to 10 years and move on. That's that 10 years is about the limit of the attention span for free countries for a given leader to be in office. So anyway, uh, so the traffic light coalition had a bumpy budget. If there were new elections, it would probably be a unity government. And if not, if for some reason uh, it were not a unity government, it would probably be a Jamaica coalition, which is 
the citrus parties, right, of the Free Democrats in yellow and the green, Gruna in green, um, forming with the CDU. The CDU, the Christian Democrats, are represented by the color black. Black, yellow, and green are the colors of the Jamaican flag, which is what they call the Jamaican coalition. So I just love German politics because it's all about these colors and traffic lights and the Jamaican flag, and it's fun stuff. But um, they, they managed to get the budget through. Looks like they're going to stick it out a little bit longer. Um, and, and there's that. And then, of course, uh, in Germany, the Alternative Party, uh, Alternative for Deutschland, or you know, Alternative for Germany, they are... Um, an anti-immigration party, more or less pro-Russian. Uh, they're seen as dangerous nationalistic populists by many people in the German political system and with some good cause. I'm going to be fair there. Um, I don't know that they're as dangerous as people think they are, uh, but, you know, the, the German political system eschews extremism. And for good reason. Germans have seen what happens when extremism takes power and I think it's fair for Germans to be rather cautious about that kind of thing. In any case, Alternative would probably gain in, in a new election as well, making coalition talks more difficult. So that's pretty much Europe. All right, moving on to the Houthis. The Houthis uh, in Yemen, now I, I did a special episode last year, so you can go back and find that bonus episode where I just discussed what was going on in Yemen and the war there. But basically... The Houthis have a pseudo-state around Sana'a, the capital, and uh, in northern Yemen. And they're using ballistic missiles, suicide drones, or one-way drones, if you like. Um, depends on which way you fall on that. The defense establishment is preferring one-way drone, but suicide drone is far more uh, dramatic. Uh, and cruise missiles. And they're trying to attack shipping. And they've even seized you know, taken hostage uh, crew members and seize ships in the Red Sea. And they're trying to block the uh, the Bab el-Mandab Strait that prevents ships from going into the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal, right? So Egypt is our biggest loser right there because Egypt makes a lot of money. The Egyptian government makes uh, something like a billion dollars a year from uh, revenue, in revenue, from ships passing through the Suez Canal. It's a big thing for Egypt. And it's very nearly 4,000 miles longer to sail around uh, Cape Good Hope and, and around Africa. And depending on where you're going in Europe, I mean, if you're going to some place in the eastern Mediterranean, like, say, Greece or Turkey, you have to travel all the way around Africa, right? And then deep into the Mediterranean, if you're going to Italy or southern France, Again, deep into the Mediterranean. Uh, now, if you're going up north, it's you know not so far off the beaten path because you would, if you sail through the the Suez Canal, you still have to sail through the Mediterranean and out the the gates of Hercules, <laughs> the uh, uh, Rock of Gibraltar, I should say, <laughs> out through the the Strait of Gibraltar into the Atlantic to go up to Northern Europe. But either way, look, it's it's a lot more miles. We're talking about you know the difference between seven thousand mile trip from East Asia to an 11,000-mile trip from East Asia. And um, Peter Zion's pointing out that like, if, if this is sustained for any period of time, look to see the super tanker return, because you know big tankers that can carry a large volume of oil are the only way in which long trips at sea are profitable, right? So you know, you know, in order to make it profitable to travel so far, you have to have a ship that carries a lot of oil. These smaller tankers just aren't profitable at those kinds of distances. Anyway, 
20 countries have allied themselves to uh, patrol the Red Sea and combat this. U.S. destroyers, um, you know, Arleigh Burke-class destroyers are out there, and they are shooting down a lot of these drones and uh, missiles and what have you. Other countries have joined in. France, uh, in particular, has refused to join the U.S. command structure, a sign of weakness for the U.S. They've said they'd be willing to use NATO or something else, but they won't accept the U.S. as the commanders. Another sign of our weakness and, and the general incompetence of American leadership. But, you know, they need to be able to protect trade there. Now, who are, who are the, the people that are going to profit the most from this? Well, the Russians have this fleet of shadow ships, these ships that have their transponders turned off. They travel illegally without insurance um, and quietly, you know, through the seas. And so basically their shadow fleet will continue to travel through the Suez Canal. Obviously, they still have to pay to transit the canal, but they'll travel through the Suez Canal and around to uh, India and, and East Asia and to China. So. That's a that's a big mess, but that can that can really hurt international trade, and we need to clamp down on it. It is a unique situation, though, because the Houthis are landlocked. Or, well, they have a coast, but they are a land power. They are not a naval power, and yet they are projecting force into the naval arena, into the naval sphere, without a navy. Hmm. Interesting. Change of of you know technology has changed. Uh, the nature of warfare there, and the nature of power projection. All right. Across the Red Sea in Sudan, there's a big civil war going on there. I've talked about Sudan quite a bit in previous episodes, especially last year when the coup happened. You know, there was a, a group of like, you know, a doctor's union and some other labor organizations that <clears throat> rose up against um, the, the, you know, the former president dictator, longtime dictator Bashir. They drove him out of power. Right. And. The, the power that replaced them the, the, was uh, led by the army and a group called the RSF. So there's two. There's the, the army and this RSF group, which is made up of a group of militias that are sort of aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood and thus with Hamas, um, that are, uh, you know, they used to do Bashir's dirty work. And those were <clears throat> allied to the civilians, the labor organizations. Well, Eventually, they get rid of the labor organizations, and now the two military forces are fighting each other over the transition to a, a new government, the transition plan. Seven million people have been displaced in Sudan. South Sudan is also a conflict zone. New country formed, uh, you know, to end the war between North Sudan and South Sudan, and they're in a conflict. So, I mean, it's, it's a real mess down there. Uh, of course, you won't hear any of this in the news. There won't be any people protesting on the streets or complaints of ethnic cleansing or genocide or anything like that because there are no Jews involved. <clears throat> no Jews, no news. But terrible situation in Sudan and uh, something needs to be done. The RSF just won a major victory in battle. And General Burhan, who is serving as Sudan's current president, uh, he says that uh, that was due to incompetence and that they will fight back against the RSF and defeat them. Well, it's a, it's a densely populated country. So, again, 7 million people displaced. Uh, pretty horrible situation there. And uh, it's frustrating these things don't get more uh, attention. Apparently, you know, Africans killing Africans really isn't news. As long as there are Jews involved, they're, they're, that's definitely news. But, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing, uh, no one gets any attention there. 
Speaking of Africa and sad disasters on Christmas, Nigeria, a group of Muslim terrorists attacked a Christian village there, killed about 150 people, destroyed 300 uh, homes, injured hundreds of people, and just another one of these horrific attacks. Most of these people died in their beds, you know, unaware that anything was happening. And it took 12 hours for authorities to respond. It's, it's, you know, this, this militant Islam, it's the same chimera, the same evil, no matter where you go, right? Um, committing the same kinds of horrors. Again, another horrible thing that happened. No news, no protests, no massive demonstrations in the U.S. or calls to action because there were no Jews involved. <clears throat> All right. Um, Iran proxy Kataib, uh Hezbollah in uh, eastern Iraq, they're all Hezbollah of some kind. It's, you know, Hezbollah means army of God. It's something that uh, the Iranian um, militants use to, the term that broadly applies to uh, all the terrorist groups that support Iran other than the Houthis and Hamas. Uh, so you'll hear the term Hezbollah thrown out there a, a lot. But in any case, these guys attacked the U.S. base in Erbil in uh, the Kurdish zone in Iraq. Three U.S. service personnel were injured, one critically, and the U.S. has shot back, damaging that uh, the infrastructure of that terror group. So more Iranian agitation through its proxies. More on that in just a minute. And finally, on this uh, section, before I go into World War III by proxy after the break, <clears throat> U.N. reform... <laughs> Before October 7th, one of the key issues I was going to talk about was UN reform. And my main thing being, could the UN be reformed? First and foremost, and if it were going to be reformed, what do I, your gregarious Vulcan, your mad genius, think ought to be done to reform it? Well, I have a short, sweet, simple answer here, and that is that the UN cannot be reformed, and the best thing we can do is dissolve it. The United States should leave the UN, I mean, I, I suppose we could give them an ultimatum and say, you know, if the U.N. doesn't do X, Y and Z before a certain date, we're done with the U.N. That would probably be a smarter way to go about it. But we need to leave the U.N. We need to kick them out of the U.S. And we need to make it very clear that we regard the United Nations as a hostile force, a hostile entity. Right. And why? The U.N. is so anti-Semitic. They are allied with Hamas. They, they seem to be on Iran's side. They're doing absolutely nothing positive in the world. Uh, and uh, the U.N. General Assembly is out there condemning Israel every other day, but doesn't have time uh, to condemn Sudan or Syria or talk about any of the other things that are going on in the world. The U.N., if you, if you didn't know better, you would think the U.N. exists specifically to persecute Jews. And that is why the U.N. has failed. The idea of the U.N., when it was founded, was to prevent another world war by allowing us, the United States, to internationalize our power in the world and give the world a voice in how world affairs are managed. This concept of international law, of the rules-based international order. Well, the rules-based international order is breaking down. The UN became irrelevant immediately after it was founded because we had a Cold War. The moment the U.S. and the Soviet Union were officially in the Cold War, the UN was obsolete. It had failed in its mission because we were already in conflict and the U.N. has done <clears throat> nothing of, of, of any kind of consequence since then. We can do better without it. We should get rid of the U.N. and we should start with something new. What was I going to propose? 
I was thinking along the lines of, first of all, the UNRWA would have to be dissolved. You know, there would be an end to the anti-Semitism at the UN and, you know, the UN needs to start treating Israel fairly. The U.S. should demand those things. And if those things are not uh, corrected at the UN uh, within a given period of time, maybe a year, two years, I don't know, something, then uh, we would have a cause to withdraw. Right. Uh, Another thing I was going to propose is that the UN, you know, has a stupid thing where these dictatorships like Syria and Iran and Saudi Arabia end up sitting on the Human Rights Council. And it's like, you know, where they're obviously condemning Israel all the time. Uh, You know, human rights abusers have no business sitting on that. So we should have some kind of human rights or, you know, freedom index or something, some bar that countries have to rise to in order to be considered part of the international community. And then if they meet that standard of humanitarian rights and what have you, then they could sit on councils like that. Uh, The UN isn't going to do that, right? That reform isn't going to happen. And finally, uh, the UN should be more democratic. Like some of the General Assembly members should be elected from countries rather than just representing dictators and, and governments and what have you. If people have a vote somewhere, even if they don't get to vote for their national leader because it's a king or a dictator or whatever, if those countries had to let people vote, then those people could show their dis, their their disaffection in a legitimate, fair vote. They could show their disaffection with that government. I don't know. Looking at it now, the UN can't be saved. We need to leave, and it's over. Those are thoughts that can be now directed toward what will replace the UN. Down the road... We will have another international organization called something else that we can go into and it will have to have a human rights standard and not be anti-Semitic. When I get back from the break, uh, World War Three by proxy, and I will conclude after that. All right, on to the section about World War III by proxy. Uh, a number of people are out there talking about this as Cold War II. There, there's some people talking about it that way. We're talking about the same thing, really, just in two different ways. In, in my mind, this is no longer a Cold War. It ceased to be anything like a Cold War on October 7th. Uh, the Cold War being, you know, between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and its allies— um, there were some brush fires. There were, you know, there was there was Korea, there was Vietnam, <clears throat> there was uh, Afghanistan. I mean, there were all these little conflicts around the world that we were all in, you know, interested in. <laughs> but you know, the major powers were less directly involved in a lot of them. I just mentioned the three that you know where the major powers were very directly involved. You know, the U.S. and our allies in Korea, the. Uh, you know, the U.S. and and a few allies in Vietnam and, of course, the Soviets invading Afghanistan. So <clears throat> those are examples of, um, you know, very direct things during the Cold War. But in any case, <clears throat> this this to me seems like a much more serious war. And there's the threat that China could attack Taiwan, which would drag the U.S. into direct confrontation with China, who's the leader of the uh, Axis forces. So I just I don't see this as a Cold War. Maybe you could argue it 
I say World War III by proxy. Yes, it's a little more dramatic. And no, I'm not usually out there being dramatic and, uh, you know, having the uh, uh, the headlines, the, the eye-grabbing, you know, ear-popping headlines of, you know, oh, my God, the world's going to come to an end. No, but this this is World War III by proxy, right? China and North Korea as an extension. Russia and Iran constitute a new axis of evil. <clears throat> they do not... Respect the international rules-based order. They want U.S. power overthrown. They are willing to engage in incredible barbarism. Uh, you know, mass murder, mass graves, <clears throat> rape and, and torture of people. Uh, and while they don't all share the same interests precisely, they are all united by their desire to see us, the United States, weakened. Right? We are the target. And they figured out that if they can take down our allies, Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, if they can injure our allies, then we become weaker. We look weaker. So that's that's World War Three by proxy. <clears throat> and that's, you know, oh, it's quite a thing. Well, I <clears throat> talked in the last episode about Venezuela getting involved in, in agitating and trying to distract, you know, be another distraction and maybe trying to invade Guyana over Essequibo a resource-rich region in uh, western Guyana and just east of Venezuela. And uh, it didn't seem to get anyone scared. Brazil moved forces to the region to dissuade Venezuela from making such an attack. The U.S. military performed uh, some, some exercises with the Guyanese military, <clears throat> and that seems to have dissuaded. And... Uh, none of the companies pulled out. Uh, Exxon and other oil companies that are producing oil offshore in Guyana decided they were going to stay and were not going to be intimidated to leaving. Likewise, the company that mines for gold in the Essequibo region presently decided it would stay and continue. So Venezuela's <clears throat> saber rattling really accomplished nothing, or as they would say in the local uh, lingo, nada. It accomplished precisely nada. So that is um, that is the thing. Now Venezuela has decided to back down from military confrontation and they're going to try to negotiate. It's been argued uh, by various people from Yal Ferguson to uh, Stephen Kotkin and others that maybe Venezuela is just agitating in an effort to get its, you know, you know, first of all, to create the distraction to help their allies in Russia and, and Iran and what have you, but also um, to try to to force Guyana to concede money to Venezuela for their oil and their gold and resources and this kind of thing to to, you know, make a a, a, a big show of military. Basically, they were bluffing, to put it in fairly simple poker terms, and uh, their bluff has been called. And so it seems now that war has been averted. And as I said before, it is an easy war to avert. And if we had stronger leadership in the U.S., there would have been no agitation toward that war in the first place. So that's one area where it's a win for the rules-based international order. It's a win for the good guys and a loss for the thieves. So good guys won, thieves zero. All right. 
Um, <clears throat> China continues its agitations. They're out in the South China Sea making trouble. They're blocking Filipino fishermen from fishing in certain parts of the, the sea and doing everything they can. They, they want to control that part of the ocean. But more importantly, it's a way for them to agitate. If they control the South China Sea to the, what's called the Nine Dash Line, then uh, they can push around, you know, Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, Indonesia, Singapore, and the Philippines, and basically confiscate their maritime territory and control in what we all recognize as international waters. International waters where over $5 trillion of trade passes through. Anyway, China is... Um, Oof, what a what a mess. Anyway, so China's main thing is they're agitating in the South China Sea. They continue to make um, incursions into Taiwanese airspace. They continue to make noise, but they're not really ready for war. As I've talked about before, economically, you know, they import so much food, they import so much fuel, uh, they wouldn't be able to survive a conflict. And they're, you know, they're, they're trying to commission a supercarrier that isn't ready for action yet and a bunch of things. So the time isn't quite right, but the time may never be right because now is basically the best time, the next six months that she uh, could make his attack. Uh, but it doesn't look good. Uh, the U.S. is deploying new weapons to the region that will uh, jeopardize, you know, land-based anti-ship cruise missiles, new uh, anti-ship cruise missiles that can be deployed on submarines and destroyers. And those things are going to threaten and you know jeopardize Chinese naval assets. So not a good thing for China. In any case, um, <clears throat> China's facing a major demographic disaster within the next five to 10 years. Their population is aging. They don't enough, have enough young workers to work and, and prop up their society. There is no economic theory. There is no economic model for how a country in China's situation functions. We've seen Japan adjust its entire economy to acknowledge demographic problems. But, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that thought in just a second when I conclude, but... Um, they did that. They planned that. They knew it was coming. And now the Japanese economy is recycling down slowly, as slowly as they can, as their population ages and uh, the number of younger people in Japan declines. So the, the China's headed for a big mess. If we can just deter them a few more years, then China will not be able to do these things. Their economy will collapse. They'll be bankrupt. China itself may break up. If you know Chinese history, either they have a strong central government or they're five or six separate polities. So we'll see. You know, I, for one, always hope for the best. I hope the people of China will be able to get rid of the Communist Party and create keep a, a central authority, but one that is more pluralistic. However, um, China attempts to go that general direction have not been successful. Watched a great lecture where, uh, you know, it was postulated that in the 1980s, China was becoming more pluralistic and it almost worked. And then after Tiananmen Square, um, you know, basically, you know, Deng Xiaoping and, and Jiang Zemin cracked down on those freedoms and reasserted the Communist Party's direct control over everything. And ever since then, it's been one dictator after another. And the pluralism has not improved. And obviously, Xi Jinping is, you know, like a neo-Maoist, you know. So in any case, I hope for the best. 
Iran. It, it, Iran is engaged in this maritime terrorism in addition to Hamas's attack on Israel. They seem to have underestimated. Um, <clears throat> Iran is, is attacking shipping through the Houthis, through their proxies, right? The Houthi rebels, Hamas, Hezbollah, never Iran itself. Although, you know, Iran is making trouble in the Gulf, um, in the Arabian Gulf and in the Arabian Sea. But they, um, you know, they're, they're not, most for the most part, they're not doing anything directly. Russia, meanwhile, continues its war in Ukraine. Ukraine is running short on supplies and needs aid quickly. And Europe has, you know, aid in Europe is stalled because of Hungary and aid in the U.S. is stalled because the Biden administration refuses to compromise over border security, even though seven in 10 Americans wants border security. So that's the situation that's it's going on there. Um, and as I discussed in the last episode, we have to decide whether we want to win or lose. Right. I mean, it's a matter of, you know, do we want to win? If we want to win this, we need to. You know, we need to hit hard here, spend the money and make this thing happen. If we pass the aid bill, it will be a total of about one hundred and five billion dollars, depending on how you're calculating it. But in the ballpark of about one hundred billion dollars to Ukraine from the United States, that's not money that goes to Ukraine. No pallets of cash doesn't get deposited into a bank account over there. That is money that is spent here to send weapons over there. And a very little bit of it is given to the Iranian government to pay for pensions and a few other things. Um, the, the opportunity for graft and corruption is minimal. I'm not going to say it's not happening. I'm just saying it's minimal. In any case, if we spend that money, it'll be the best hundred billion dollars we've spent on our defense ever. Because I just want you to walk through, you know, imagine... Gonna, gonna, I'm going to be John Lennon for a minute. I'm always wearing John Lennon sunglasses, for those who don't know. Um, I, I, I did not like the Marxism of the Beatles, but you have to admit there's something about the optimism uh, that uh, uh, people like John Lennon inspired. But just imagine for a moment, imagine with me, a world in which China falls apart, in which Russia loses to Ukraine definitively and is defeated and is not able to make um, pose a military threat to anyone. You know, again, their nuclear weapons are, you know, atrophying, basically. They're rusting. Um, imagine a world in which Iran fails and their proxies go away, right? No more North Korea. No more. Just imagine a world without bad guys, right? When all these guys are gone, right? We will save trillions of dollars on our defense, national security. I mean, at this point, we're spending, you know, over $800 billion a year on defense, we will be in a position where we won't have to spend that anymore. We'll have to spend some part of it to keep our Navy and our Air Force up and, and a small army and reasonable Marine Corps, but we won't have to spend that money. <clears throat> we'll be able to pay down our deficit, uh, pay down, to reduce our deficit and pay down our national debt, especially if we control social spending, which really needs to be curtailed. But we won't go into that. In any case, we need to decide if we want to win this thing and we need to be able to spend uh, what... We have to, basically, in order to win. All right, with that, I'll begin to conclude here. I, I want to mention I have an article coming soon about demographic winter and trying to reverse the demographic effects of low birth rates and what have you, uh, citing Japan as a primary example and talking about some of the things we can do here in the U.S. That will be on politicalvanguard.com. Politicalvanguard.com is the home of Inside Israel News. And it will be in the contributors section, although the podcast episodes, the show is in the um, 
the section for Inside Israel News. In any event, uh, look for that article there. goes into some detail about that. Please also visit InsideIsrael.News, the main website. And uh, from there, you can sh- click the shop merch, or you can just go over to the Etsy store and look there. If you're not familiar with Etsy, Etsy.com. It's a store where you can buy things from uh, creators who sell online. It's just a means for me to sell. Uh, Etsy has its ups and downs, but um, I'd rather not sell through Amazon or places like that. So I decided that I'd go ahead and sell through Etsy. Anyway, uh, t-shirts, there are phone cases, there are lots of cool things you can get there that uh, show off your pro-Israel swag, your inside Israel news um, t-shirt or bag or what have you. And uh, nothing says I stand with Israel like the Promised Land shirt, which has a beautiful representation of Israel created by an artist friend of mine. And uh, that uh, that's a great t-shirt right there. It'll look good on you. All profits, such as they are, not, not a lot of profit in those for me. Uh, those are going to charity, Israeli charities, to help um, offset the horrors that are happening over there. With that... Another great episode, I hope. A lot to say. Man, it's been long. Hopefully things will settle down a little bit and I'll be able to get on top of some things. But I just wanted to make sure I was able to cover all of the little things that are going on out there. I'll have more to say on a few other topics um, as when I return in the next episode. I will say thus, as always, goodbye, Lahitro. Oh,